Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, Minnesotans may soon have better access to new cancer treatments. We take a look at the DNR's newly proposed DEER plan, and the Ryder Cup is returning to Hazeltine. But first, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg testified before Congress this week in the wake of a massive privacy breach. I spoke with Senator Amy Klobuchar about what's being done to prevent something like this from happening again, and what were the big takeaways from Zuckerberg's testimony. Well, I think the first was that they have admitted this was a major breach of trust, uh, that people were hurt by it. Um, and I believe that they're going to change some of their policies. Uh, They are going to make it easier for people to protect their information, and most significantly for me, because I've been leading the Honest Ads Act, uh, they are voluntarily posting all their political ads, whether they're about issues or candidates, so everyone can see them, and that will create a disincentive for all these sleazy ads to be put on people's Facebook pages because they have to display them for everyone and they have to say who paid for them and how much the buy was. That's a big change. Um, I am, of course, concerned uh, that they follow through on the privacy promises, and that's why uh, Senator Kennedy and I, um, he's the Republican senator from Louisiana, have introduced legislation to protect privacy of consumers' online data. Uh, We're going to be doing it in the next week. It's kind of like a uh, social media bill of rights, so it allows people to Um, protect their information. It says that if there's a breach that they're going to have to uh, be able to be notified within a certain period of time. And I think this will be one of the first bipartisan bills that will be introduced. Senator, I'm wondering, do you know, was your information hacked on Facebook? Did you find that out? (laughs) No, I haven't found that out. Um, I, you know, my dad's 90th birthday wishes, that would be concerning. Um, just kidding. That was a little joke. Um, so um, I, uh, I haven't found that out. And my Facebook page is not a private Facebook page. It's a public one for everyone to see and all the comments. So it's a much different situation than some people have who have just have a private page with their friends. I'm just wondering what your impression was of the testimony from Mr. Zuckerberg. I mean, did you find him to be a believable witness, or do you still have some concerns about what Facebook's going to do moving forward? Well, he did a good job of sitting through, you know, hours of grilling by many senators, some of whom understood the Internet, some didn't, but he was uh, good in that way. But I think the proof is in the pudding. You know, it is is he going to follow through? Are they going to follow through? Uh, and will they be supportive? He said he support my Honest Ads Act. Well, I don't want them to support it. I want them to get behind it. Twitter has now said they'll support it so we can actually get it done. Senator, you also asked him about uh, notifying people whose data has been breached within a fairly short amount of time. He seemed to be agreeable to that. How important is that? That's very important because uh, last time, a lot of the people, including right now, didn't find out that their data was breached until a news organization broke the story. And it was only when all of this came out about Cambridge Analytica that we found out first it was 30-some million and then 87 million people. And then the Russian troll farm, they just came out on that after a news media organization broke it. Um, So that is not how this works. And as you know, when 
uh, credit card companies or other companies have a situation where their uh, customers' data was breached. If they didn't report it even within a few weeks, it was a big scandal. Well, these guys didn't report it for a few years. What should the average person know about their information that's on Facebook, or what would you say to them in order to try to assure them that uh, that they still have something called privacy in this day and age? Well, I think that everyone knows that if you put something out there right now in this day and age, there's a chance it's going to get hacked. There's no doubt about it. There's a chance it's going to get out there. So that's your first rule. The second thing is that we are going to push them to make some improvements, just like we did on Do Not Call lists and on Cell Phone Bill of Rights. Over time, a new product comes out. It expands and expands. Then all of a sudden, Bad people, unscrupulous people try to take advantage of it. And then you got some rules that you have to put out there, and it kind of dials back some of the bad behavior. That is where we are right now. I think the issue is it's been going on for too long, and they were just claiming, oh, we can regulate ourselves. We're not really media companies. Well, they are. They're just called social media companies, and they're making billions of dollars off of people's private information. You know, Senator, you mentioned before that some of the the senators speaking and questioning Mr. Zuckerberg seem to be a little bit out of touch in terms of social media and what its reach is. Uh, I just wanted you to address that a little bit. I mean, Mm -hmm. are, are lawmakers out of touch with this kind of modern technology and how much of a problem is that? Well, there are a few that still have flip phones, but I don't view that as much of a problem as I do the inaction and the gridlock that has meant that people haven't done anything just because they wait until it blows up. And that's why I was ahead of the curve here with trying to advocate uh, for some of these measures. And by the way, Senator Franken had worked on this as well early on. And we have been pushing for some of these changes. And if there's any silver lining to this mess, it's that we finally are going to get the political will to take on these big companies and do something about it. Thank you to my guest, U.S. Senator Amy Klobuchar. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Patients across Minnesota will soon have better access to new cancer treatments through clinical trials. MNN's Tasha Radel has more. That's right, Scott. The University of Minnesota has launched the new Minnesota Cancer Clinical Trials Network, also known as MNCCTN. It will have multiple locations across the state. And here to talk about the new program is Douglas Yee, director of the University of Minnesota's Masonic Cancer Center. Welcome, Douglas. Can you give us some background uh, to this initiative? Sure. I don't know if you're familiar with the MinDrive uh, effort, which is a partnership between uh, the legislature and the University of Minnesota. The goal of MinDrive is to increase, uh, uh, enhance the quality of life for Minnesotans. Uh, and the university every year puts various efforts or proposals forward to support this particular opportunity. So up in to the past has recently been around things like robotics and food and environment. Uh, during the last legislative session, uh, which I guess is about a year and a half ago now, uh, our former dean, uh, Brooks Jackson, uh, came up with a thought, which was a great thought, that uh, one way to enhance the, meet the goals of the men drive is to allow uh, patients and people who live in greater Minnesota to have access to cancer clinical trials. 
Uh, we're a reasonably small state, and we're very fortunate. We have two uh, NCI-designated comprehensive cancers, us, the Masonic Cancer Center, as well as the, university, uh, as well as the Mayo Clinic Cancer Center. Um, and the goal was to make sure that everybody in the state, as best we could, have access to the research advances that are going on at our two institutions. And, and that was the thing because um, I think it's fair to say that access to some treatments is quite different when you are in the, you know, like the, the metro regions of the state versus outstate in greater Minnesota. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that really was the intent of what we, uh, the proposal for Mendrive. To accomplish this, we engaged our colleagues in the community who already are doing clinical trials. So the National Cancer Institute funds a, a group of sites called uh, National Community Oncology Research Programs are called NCORPS. Uh, NCORPS are charged with uh, performing cancer clinical trials. We have two based in the state. One is in the Twin Cities. It's the uh, Minnesota Metro MCORP. And then there's the one that's based in Duluth. It's based at Essentia. And uh, Sanford in Sioux Falls also ha- is an NCORP site, and they um, support uh, clinical trials research in sort of the western and northwestern portions of the state. So we engaged all of our partners with the concept that we wanted to build a statewide network. My view of this is we wanted to take down barriers that kept us from cooperating and collaborating with each other. And I think we're really lucky. It was widely embraced by all. Um, and I do want to give some credit to the state legislature and Governor Dayton for moving this forward as a way for us to collaborate and cooperate more than we have been in the past. And then, so we were talking kind of about those main regional hubs, and then between those um, main hubs, I think I had read that there would be 18 sites across the state. Is that right? Am I under? Yes. Okay. Okay, perfect. That, that kind of branch off from the bigger facilities. Yeah, so we're sort of a hub-and-spoke model in a couple of respects. One is we, the Masada Cancer Center, is a hub for the entire network, and we reach out to the entities I just uh, mentioned to you. At the same time, uh, within their orbit, if you will, they also have some uh, clinics in greater Minnesota that currently do not or cannot offer uh, a participation for their patients in cancer clinical trials. And that's the, the group we're really trying to target, as well as to enhance uh, all of our uh, all Minnesotans to be able to participate if they want to. And can you give me an example? I mean, is this preventive care, or would this be actual, you know, treatments, or can you kind of give me an example of that? Sure. So we're, we hope to do both. Uh, the way the network is created was what we would call an interventional trial, meaning that uh, every, every business has a term of art. An interventional trial means that you're actually proposing a patient or a subject do something to look at a very specific outcome. So it is meant to be for both prevention, screening, survivorship, as well as treatment. So one of our first clinical trials going through is to determine if food products, and a particular food product is ginger, whether or not ginger can change the composition of the bacteria in your colon to make a more favorable environment, in other words, less likely to develop colon cancer. We are starting to understand colon cancer, the interaction between our bacteria that live there uh, and the development of colon cancer are highly linked. We also understand that some of the bacteria are particularly associated with higher development of colon cancer. And uh, scientists both at Hormel Institute, which is also part of the network and part of the University of Minnesota, and our colleagues here in, uh, in the School of Public Health have shown that ginger and ginger compounds can actually make 
the colon environment a little more favorable. So one principle of this particular trial is that, well, we would go ahead and then really outline the ability of whether this is true when patients who have had colon polyps will check the colon content of what's the bacteria that are living there, uh, give them ginger, which should be a safe intervention, uh, and see if we can change them to a more favorable environment. Makes sense. Very interesting. Anything else you wanted to, to add today, uh, Douglas, that maybe I didn't bring up? No, I think, you know, one of the goals of clinical trials and the ability to offer them to everybody who ha- either has a cancer or is at risk for cancer is really to also enhance the quality of care that everybody's getting. I always say when I talk to patients about what their uh, tr- opportunities are for uh, treatment, We always talk about clinical trials, and one of the things about clinical trials is when we talk to patients about it, we have to explain exactly why we're doing it, uh, why it's an option for them, what the state of the art is now, and I actually think uh, as centers participate in clinical trials, it improves the overall quality of care uh, for everybody in the system. So that's one of our other goals for the network. Thanks again to my guest, Douglas Yee, director of the University of Minnesota's Masonic Cancer Center. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. We'll be back with more Minnesota Matters after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The DNR is encouraging the public to review and comment on the new proposed Minnesota Deer Plan. J.W. Cox took a look at the plan from the viewpoint of two key stakeholders. Craig Ingwall is the executive director of the Minnesota Deer Hunters Association. He called this a crucial period for his fellow hunters. Deer hunters have generally wanted two things, more deer and, and more input on DNR decisions. And so... Now we are we are afforded that opportunity, and we should take advantage of it. Tell the DNR what we think they should be doing in the next 10 years in their management of deer and how they interact with the public, and this is that opportunity. Ingwall was part of the joint effort to put together this draft plan. That effort led in large part by DNR Wildlife Population Manager Leslie McEninley. She says they heard the desire of Minnesota hunters to be included in this process. We've long done public engagement, but that's one thing that we're really ramping up. We're recognizing that that, uh, people don't necessarily feel that they uh, have a strong relationship with staff. We have concerns about whether or not they understand our work, trust the decisions that we're making. And so we're we're ramping that up considerably. A new thing is going to be the establishment of a statewide deer input group. And so that's going to be an ongoing group that we meet with. That's one kind of formal structure. And then we've got a whole bunch of other sort of uh, informal opportunities to engage and formal opportunities at, at smaller scale. So, for example, we're committing to having opportunities to meet with area staff, area wildlife managers, at least twice a year. And that's, you know, if you look at the plan, there's actually a graphic that we've used to try and lay out uh, more clearly for folks what, you know, our deer management activities, the times that we make um, decisions. So it's, it's an effort to let people kind of uh, see the work that we're doing that they might not know is happening. That structure is a welcome change for Ingwall and his members. Well, historically, uh, hunters had input in about every five years in what they call goal-setting uh, meetings and where they determine targets for the long haul. But after that, in the intervening years, uh, hunters really didn't have any direct say or any formal input, and that would be an issue if they uh, wanted 
to say that it should be bucks only or if they wanted fewer antlerless permits, etc. And one of the things we pushed for and is in the plan is that there there will be an opportunity for annual input for hunters and anybody else who's interested before DNR makes those decisions that they make every year on those issues. Ingwall said the statewide impact group is great, but local groups are also vital. DNR manages for deer in 128 different deer permit areas across the state. So in each one of those areas, they determine whether it should be bucks only or if it should be hunter's choice, meaning a hunter could shoot either buck or doe, or if it should be what they call lottery where they're antlerless permits. And so they, they do that every year, and they make that determination every year. And now there's going to be an opportunity before they make each one of those decisions to have public input to say, hey, we had a hard winter, we think you should be bucks only, or whatever the opinion might be. And that has not been available before. Both hunters and regulators agree on the need for a harvest target laid out in this plan. McEnany calls that a type of tangible data that is extremely important. We have mandatory registration. It's feedback on how the season has gone and, and, and a rough reflection of our population and the opportunity for hunters to harvest deer. We live in Minnesota and, and are impacted by tough northern winters and that sort of thing, so that'll sh- impact our population. But overall, people would you know, ideally desire a level of harvest that they can kind of expect and anticipate from year to year. Now, that's not necessarily going to happen because harvest fluctuates depending on where we're trying to move the population. So we've got these population goals that will still inform how we set seasons. But ultimately, if we're anticipating that roughly around 200,000 deer harvested per year would reflect management for deer across the state in all the permit areas to meet population goals where people aren't saying the population is too low, they're not saying it's too high, right there in that sweet spot. Ingwald agrees in principle with the need for a harvest target, but not in the number set by the DNR. It's lower than the Deer Hunters Association would like. We support an annual harvest objective of 225,000 or thereabouts. It's not something that we would, as an organization, expect them to meet every year. So even if they agreed with 225,000, it's just a, a picture of how the deer herd is doing. And because it's a, it's a number that they keep every year and you can track back, you could go back to 2014 when after two severe winters and then the harvest was 139,000 or back in 2003 when deer were really abundant and it was 290,000. So, but over the years you can see patterns and averages and so it, it's a long haul number. It's not an expectation for every year. So it's just an approximation of where people think the herd should be. While the plan does have a keen focus on issues important to hunters, McEnany adds it has a broader scope. Addressing impacts that deer have on other resources, and so that that relates to resources like native plant communities. Habitat management for multiple species is something that we consider. There's pieces in there that acknowledge our concerns about deer damage and deer depredation for, say, agricultural crops, as well as, you know, forest regeneration. That's something that's important too. To view the plan in full and comment, visit mndnr.gov slash deer plan between now and May 9th. Scott, back to you. Thank you, JW. Minnesota Matters returns after this.
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The Ryder Couple returned to Minnesota in 2028. An initial announcement made by the PGA of America last month was followed by an official ceremony this week at Hazeltine National Golf Club in Chaska, where the international competition was held in 2016. m Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with Hazeltine President Bob Fafinski to talk about the quick turnaround to get the Ryder Cup back. Kind of take me through the process since 2016 in order to get to where we are today that uh, 2028 you get this big event back. Well, I think there's probably that period of time after the event was over where you just uh, have a collective sigh of relief and uh, you, you sort of reflect on the kind of experience that we had. But then we, um, we kind of uh, started talking to the PGA of America not too long after the 16 about what our future looked like together. And quickly we kind of moved into a conversation about uh, having another Ryder Cup back to come back to uh, Hazeltine. And uh, so during the course of the year last year, we, we worked through all the details and uh, we were able to come to an agreement. So uh, it was very easy, actually. How excited are you? Well, I tried to, t- I tried to say it. I, I uh, think uh, the membership is so proud that we're the first to be able to do this in uh, history in America. Um, and I think it just speaks so well for the support that our membership gives, the uh, community support. I mean, people in Minnesota love golf. They have a love affair with golf, and we like having these big events. So, um, and this is the place to do it. It's in our DNA uh, to do this. And I think we feel a responsibility to do it as well. Yeah, you mentioned you're the first American course ever to get a second Ryder Cup, and to have it happen, you know, basically within you know 12 years of each other too, I th- speaks volumes of what the PGA of America thinks of what you guys did in 16. I would think, for sure. I mean, we we've talked about that at length, um, and um, you know, our experience is just our experience. What we try to do is do it the best we can possibly do. Uh, we spent a lot of time on, on the preparation part of it, the rehearsing part of it. We tweaked it, we tweaked it, we tweaked it. We finally uh, came up with a formula that we thought was uh, going to be successful, and it turns out that it was. Uh, so we've got that knowledge base to build on. The nice thing is it's coming back in 10 years, so a lot of the people that were involved are still going to be here rather than having it like 30 years from now where you have to recreate everything again. The stories oftentimes in the Ryder Cup uh, tell themselves, so that part of it was great. But I think the organizational part of it, too, had to be something they were impressed with. I mean, did, did it go better than you even thought it would when you look back to how it all unfolded? Not only the storylines, but I'm talking about uh, crowds, talking about the organizational part of it, all of that. Well, when you think about coordinating 4,000 volunteers, uh, trying to do a first-class job for all of our guests, um, and um, all the detail and planning that went into that, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were pinching ourselves with how well it, it, it turned out. And then there's, there are things that you can't control. You know, you can't control the weather. And we had some pretty scary weather coming up to the Ryder Cup. I think we got record rains, you know, in August and September. Thankfully, you know, some higher power, I think, was watching over us and things dried out the week of the, the Ryder Cup. Um, so that was something that was wonderful. And the other thing is, um, honestly, having the U.S. team win here, uh, actually I think changed not only the I mean it was great for the Ryder Cup itself to have a more intense competition that the US could compete in but at least the the narrative for our golf club sort of changed as well that we were that site that made that happen and I think there's a lot of pride in Minnesota that it happened here at Hazeltine. 
There also, I think, is an underrated aspect. You mentioned that commitment of your members because, let's face it, a lot of those members want to play golf yeah. on this great course. When you have events like this, that means they're not necessarily getting all the golf maybe they want. So I know uh, that, that that's probably a fine line that you guys walk in regard to, okay, uh, how many events do we want to host and how do we want to do this? But the, the membership does uh, take a, a little bit of a bullet with this, right? We do, but we sign up for it. Right. So when we apply to be a member here, they actually show you your, the mission statement, and it actually says in the mission statement that we're a golf club that's going to um, build and maintain a golf course and facilities suitable for the conduct of a national championship. I mean, that's pretty lofty, and uh, if you don't want to sign up for that, you don't come here. So we actually have to sign a little certification that we're going to support the mission. So as a result, I mean, would we all like to have unlimited access to our golf course? Of course. But we all understand that this is what we do and that this is uh, what we're all about. You mentioned some of that fresh knowledge uh, from 16 now moving to 28. And there's a good chance that there's some golfers that golfed in 16 that'll still be around. I mean, there's such a good young American core of golfers. You look, the four current holders of trophies in the majors are all young Americans. I mean, that's got to be exciting as well to, to look ahead. Uh, we hope they're here in 10 years because they're a dynamic group and uh, exciting to watch. Uh, you can, can kind of see a generational shift occurring between Tiger and Phil and these younger golfers who all actually idolize Tiger and Phil and they've been great influences on the team. And now it's their turn, turn to perform and, and look at what they're doing. It is uh, an amazing time. It's a resurgence in golf, I think. And uh, it's a very exciting time to have uh, young players of that quality and talent involved in the game. Congratulations. Great news for Minnesota, that's for sure. Thank you so much. Appreciate your interest. Thank you, Mike Grimm and Hazeltine President Bob Fafinski. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.